Would you take the Word of God this evening with me and turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 21. Exodus and uh, chapter 21. We come to this section in the book of Exodus and last week in our last study, not last week, in our last study, we divided the law into several categories. And those categories are, first of all, there is the moral law. We find those in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Then you find the judicial or the civil laws, uh, and that means how did the nation of Israel operate under a theocracy? Uh, that's the nation of Israel. And so that's uh, the referred to as often as the judgments and the statutes of the Lord. They concern how the children of Israel are to behave towards one another and interact with one another. It is... Um, if you would, the governing social conduct for the children of Israel. And uh, those are first found, you'll find later in uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, but the first found really here in Exodus chapter 21 through chapter 23. And then a little later on in the book of um, Exodus, beginning in Exodus chapter 25, we're going to find the ceremonial law. And those are uh, these concern the religious life, of the nation of Israel uh, surrounding uh, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and all those things. Uh, and those are instituted in Exodus 25, and they're really given in deep detail in the book of Leviticus concerning the ceremonial law. Now in Exodus chapter 21, we began uh, last week, uh, last study, not last week, I was away last week, but in our last study to talk about the first subject that he deals with within the judicial civil law is the issue of slaves or servants. Now the first question we ask is why begin there out of all the things to deal with uh, with respect to the children of Israel why begin there? And I think there's probably a good indication that he begins there because that's where they've come from, haven't they? They have come from slavery. They know certain things about masters and servants. And so God knows the way they've lived, most of them their entire lives. And he sets forth some judgments and statutes so that the judges in Israel can discern on those particular issues. Now, I'm going to go over some details. And when I first came to Exodus 21, I read the whole chapter a number of times. It's one of those chapters. There are chapters like that in the Bible. They're all from God. But some chapters is like, oh, this is, going to be, this is going to be a tough one. How am I going to address this? And really the goal as we think, as we study God's Word is, what can, uh, how can we receive benefit from this text of Scripture? We understand today as New Testament believers that we are not under this judicial law. We, that's not how we operate. Um, but that's how the children of Israel, of Israel were to operate. But what I'm concerned about is what does this teach us about God and about what God wants His people to do and how He wants His people to conduct themselves as they deal with one another. And so we learn some things, I believe, about God. That's really what we learn. And so we're going to begin reading here in Exodus 21. We'll begin reading in verse 1, read down to verse 11 on 
uh, this, um, in this first section. So would you stand with me? If you are able this evening, stand with me in Exodus 21. We'll begin reading in verse 21. Uh, verse 1, work down to verse 11. And the word of God says, Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, for unto the doorpost, or, or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Now, I, let me pause here. We talked about how there's a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, the perfect servant. Verse 7, we continue on the subject. And if a man sell his daughter to be a maidservant, she shall not go out as the men servants do. If she please not her master, who hath betrothed her to himself, then shall he let her be redeemed. To sell her unto a strange nation, he shall have no power, seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. And if he have betrothed her unto his son, he shall deal with her after the manner of daughters. If he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage shall not diminish. And if he do not these three unto her, then shall she go out free without money. <laughs> all right, what is all this about? Well, let me bring your attention maybe a portion here that helps us to get an understanding as to what is all this about. Why is he giving instruction concerning selling and service, masters, and, and so on. Notice at the end of verse 8, he says, Seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. So, I'd like to preach this evening on a message that I've entitled... Dealing in mercy, not deceitfully. Dealing in mercy, not deceitfully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. And Lord, our desire is to learn some things about you this evening and how we today are to interact with our fellow man. Help us to understand the principles communicated in this text and to live by those principles in our own lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we come to this text, it's important here to understand, first of all, that Israel was operating under a theocracy. The nation of Israel was directed here as being directed according to divine appointment. And as we deal really through the book of Exodus and uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible really deal with Israel as it was operating under a theocracy. We read, for example, about Moses instructing the people a little later on on 
giving a bill of divorce to their wives. But when Jesus Christ comes on the scene in the New Testament, He gives the reason why Moses did that by the authority of God. He says, because of the hardness of their hearts. You see, God is dealing with the children of Israel because He knows the heart of man and He knows what the tendency of man is. Jesus, when He speaks on the topic, He says, but in in the beginning it was not so. It was not God's design. We know what God's design is. God's design is one man and one woman for life. That's God's design. Now man, because of his sinfulness, uh, does not fulfill God's design and disobeys and rebels against God's design. And so God brings, under a theocracy, He brings some rules, some judgments. And we refer to judgments. The reason they refer to judgments is when there would be problems among themselves and things that they would deal with and conflicts, how would these things be resolved? Well, they would be resolved by them coming to a judge. And the judge would hear the case. He would hear both sides. And then he would make a judgment. He would um, say here is the person who is in the right, and here is the person who is in the wrong, he would pass judgment. And so God gave instruction here. He gave judgment so that the judges in the nation of Israel were, would have some guiding principles by which to operate as they dealt with conflict between the children of Israel. We find here that there's really a separation. Clearly, we find this in those first five books of the Bible, that there is a separation between how the children of Israel operate among themselves and how they are to operate with strangers, those who are outside of Israel. And there's a difference between those two. And we'll see that throughout uh, the book of Exodus. But here in Exodus 21, God gave them statutes in general, really to aid, to assist the judges of Israel to determine particular cases. And he began with a law here concerning servants. But there's really two principles that come forth from uh, the first statutes or the first judgment that God gives them. Uh, And here's the first one. First of all, he shows the need that man, as he deals with, with his fellow man, the need that there is to show mercy, to show mercy. And secondly, the need to show moderation, moderation. Now, why why would I use the word moderation? The word moderation has the idea that uh, there's always a potential in our lives to go to the extremes on on, on either side. And he doesn't want the children of Israel to be extreme on either end. He wants them to be balanced. And so in those judgments, God puts forth some scenarios. They're not always going to be exactly the same, right? When you think about the court of law, there's different cases and, uh, right, not uh, two cases are the same. And so, but the law gives us some guy, a, a, a framework by which to operate. And this is what this is. Uh, There is a framework by those judgments uh, that the children of Israel ought to understand. And this framework is that there is a great need to show mercy and there's a need to show moderation. Now, we already dealt with the six verses. If you remember, let me 
summarize for you the first six verses. Uh, The idea here is that uh, a Hebrew man who would become a servant, who would become, we could use even the word slave, to a master, he would, his uh, tenure as a servant would be limited. It was limited to six years. And in the seventh year, that servant had the option to go free, not to purchase his freedom. He had the option to go free, and he had a choice to make at that moment. He could either choose to go free and live on his own, or, on the other hand, he could choose to remain with his master. If he chose to remain with his master, then he would be marked. They would go to the doorpost at the front door of the house and he would put his ear against the doorpost and the master then would put an awl through his ear so that that servant would be marked that he has decided he is not serving his master because he has to fulfill a time period. He is serving his master now because he wants to. Now immediately what we see here is that the Israelites had lately been servants themselves. Uh, and now that, they had, uh, uh, now that they had become not only their own masters, but masters of servants as well, uh, here he basically says, you're not going to conduct your business as the Egyptians did. I'm going to put forth some parameters by which you are to operate Uh, lest you abuse your servants as they themselves were abused and ruled with rigor by the Egyptians as their taskmasters. And so here, basically, provision was made by these laws for the gentle, moderate, merciful relationship between a master and a servant. Now, before we proceed here, there are a number of ways in which Hebrews became servants. Notice the context we find here is the children of Israel who would become servants to other children of Israel. We're not talking here about the children of Israel uh, commanded to go to a foreign land and to get servants for themselves. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Hebrew people becoming servants to other Hebrew people. That is what we're looking at here in our text. And there are really two primary ways in which Hebrews would become servants to other Hebrews, and it's really twofold. They would become servant to other Hebrews, first of all, because of poverty. And secondly, because of crimes. In other words, how were people in those days, how did they survive if they were poor and had nothing to eat? I'll tell you how. They had no home, no food. They would go to a man who had possessions, who had food, who had land, who had herds, and they would say, I'm going to sell myself to you so I can live. It was God's remedy for poverty. And so they would serve for a set amount of time and be cared for and live as a servant under the rule of the master. And so, because of poverty, that was one of the main ways how a Hebrew became a servant to another Hebrew. And lest we think today, well, that's unfair, I don't understand this, Uh, this is not the 21st century here. 
This is in old time with lands and these children of Israel, again, they're coming to this promised land and they're going to build habitations, but how do you deal with property? God has given them a way to deal with property, but notice it would not be permanent. In other words, this system that God instituted is really a merciful system so that the poor is not left with no provision. He is given a home for six years. And so for six years, he has the opportunity to turn things around in his life. And then he can go free and establish his own home. The second way that a, a Hebrew man would become a servant to another Hebrew is that it, when crimes were involved. So at times, if somebody committed a crime against another Hebrew, uh, a judge might say to the one who committed the crime, well, you have to repay. You have become indebted. Let's put it this way. If a man, for example, killed a, a, a herd of oxen that belonged to somebody else, but he himself had no oxen, the law required that if you killed a man's oxen, that you repay him fivefold. Well, let's say he doesn't have fivefold. How does he repay that? He, it's not worthy of death. Therefore, the judge might deem in certain circumstances, well, now you have to work for that man because you can't give him back what is rightfully his. And so a judge might deem it necessary that now you have to come under the subjection of the person that you've hurt and that you've offended because it is repayment for your crimes. So those are the two main ways that people would become servants to a fellow Hebrew, either because of poverty or because of crimes. Now, there are all, all kinds of different ways. For example, let me give you uh, one of the Proverbs we will read one day as we study the book of Proverbs is, the borrower is slave to the lender. Now, in that case, the reason why this proverb exists, because under uh, the Israelite system, under this theocracy, the idea is if you are indebted to somebody else. You took a loan. Somebody gave you a loan. And you can't repay it. Well, what do you do? You become servant to him. That's why the Bible says the borrower is slave to the lender. Because if he didn't repay the loan, he became servant to the master. You see, so actually, when we look at this system, it's quite just. God is interested in true, true, not modern day, true equity. We'll see later in our passage, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so that's how God wants to deal with his people. Now he's dealing with servants here in our text, but we have to be understanding of what is the context of a Hebrew becoming a servant to another Hebrew. Either because of poverty or because of crime or because of some indebtedness that they couldn't fulfill or repay. Now, with those things in mind, when it came to poverty, there was two, ways that, two things that people did. First, an individual who was poor could sell himself as a servant if he was poor and unable to care for his own needs. So a, a person, a Hebrew, could sell himself and say, all right, I have no money, I will sell, sell myself, and the allotted time would be, let's say, the six-year period. And so for that six-year period, he would fulfill, and by the way, he would be completely cared for during that six-year period, and he would be able to turn things around. There is also a second option, we'll see that in our text, that a parent could sell a son or a daughter as a servant if he could no longer provide for them. 
Now we might think, well, that seems cruel. Well, not when we understand the context. If you can't provide for your own son and daughter, what are you going to do? You're going to let them die? Or are you going to turn them over to somebody who can care for them? You're going to turn them over to somebody who can care for them. Uh, that is what we find here. And so because of poverty, you see you could either sell yourself or if you were a parent figure, you could sell a son or a daughter for a period of time. When we think about it as a punishment, uh, judges could confine a man to servanthood for crimes committed and often the judge would say, set a period of time to be fulfilled. Now, uh, we know based on the first part of our text that at the completion of seven years of service, the servant could choose to depart from his master or remain a servant for his master. And there was, uh, we saw evidence was furnished to show that a servant had chosen to remain with his master. The servant's ear was bored on the doorpost. If you notice here, the very first judgment, we understand something about the relation between a master and a servant. That it's actually a good relationship, not a bad relationship. See, we tend to think today of modern day slavery. By the way, that's still going on around the world. And some, sometimes people, they talk about the Bible and say, well, the Bible is full of slavery and it encourages slavery. There is no such thing, not slavery in the way we think about it today. This is completely different. Now, you have to study the Bible to find that out, but the Bible makes that clear if you don't just look at one verse, but look at the entirety of the biblical revelation. And so here, uh, you find that a servant basically had the choice to serve his own master, and you say, well, who would want to do that? Well, that's because we have a skewed view of what slavery was at that time, or being a servant and having a master was at that time. It's not what we think. Because we might think that no servant would ever do that. Well, apparently not. That's the very first instruction given in all of the judgment that God gives in His Word. That that's what a servant can do. And it seems that he would want to do that if he was well treated by his master. You know, people today, they don't, I don't like the idea of having a master. Well, let me just say, if you're a Christian, then Jesus is your master. So get used to the idea, and maybe you'll think differently about it. And the reason why we are okay with Jesus Christ being our master is because we know how he treats us. We've never been so well treated by a holy God who deserves to judge us and yet has extended mercy towards us. Now, I want to look at this second part. We looked at the first six verses. Let's begin in verse 7. And what I want to do here, a little different message. I don't really have a, an outline with points. But let me give you some thoughts here. Try to explain those verses as we read them with those, uh, this understanding in mind. Notice verse 7. He, he moves from a manservant who's been under a master. Now he deals with a woman servant. How does, how would a, in what cases would a woman become a servant to a master? And here we have one scenario put forth. Uh, by, by the way, this scenario is put forth as uh, this is not something that happens all the time. But if it is to happen, here are the judgments by which you ought to operate. So I'm going to try to explain the verses, then draw out some principles that we find in those judgments, and then uh, see how we can apply this. So notice in verse 7, he says, And if a man sell his daughter to be a maidservant, she shall not go out as the men servants do. Now, 
Uh, immediately we see here, we say, well, what, why would a man sell his daughter to be a maidservant? I've already told you. Because he can't care for her. That's the only reason. Or it could also be that a man has committed crimes and he has to be punished and now he's lost everything. He can't care for his family. And so because of his own actions, his family suffers as a consequence. But the woman is to be cared for very carefully. You see, this would happen often through extreme poverty. He says in verse 7, Then uh, she shall not go out as the men servants do. Uh, now, the point here, right, he had just said in verse 6, that after six years, the manservant can choose to go free. Here he says that this woman, after six years, if you're the master, don't kick her out. Why? Because a woman at that time could not survive by herself. Uh, the way that the Jewish culture worked at that time is that uh, a woman remained under the authority of her father until she was given uh, to another man in marriage, and she would remain under her father's authority in her home until she married. If she never married, she would remain in his father's home for the duration of her life. Uh, to cast a woman out would be a cruel thing to do. And so he says, Master, you can't do that. If a woman has been sold as a servant to you after six years, you can't just kick her out and say, get out of here. That's a cruel thing to do. And so he says, you don't, you're not going to treat a woman like you treat a man. You're going to give great respect, and you're going to treat women with carefulness. That's what he is saying. Verse 8, he goes on to say, If she please not her master, who hath betrothed her to himself, then shall he let her be redeemed, to sell her unto a strange nation, sh uh, he shall have no power, seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. It's interesting, the language here. First of all, he says, if you're a master, I want you to, you have no power to do that. Well, that's not a master as we, as we think about it today. There's limitations within that authority that he possesses. And so notice when he says, if she please not her master, who hath betrothed her to himself, then shall he let her be redeemed. Now, Here's what would happen often. Remember I said because a man, when he was poor, could not care for his own daughter, often he would find a man who was unmarried. And he would say, well, uh, my daughter is young, or maybe he would think about this man who had sons, and he's thinking to himself, well, I can't care for my daughter, but if I place my daughter under your roof, you can care for her, and maybe one day you can eventually marry her, or one of your sons can marry her. He's, we'll see that later in the text. And so it would be a way for him, for his daughter to be cared for. But here he says, but let's say there's a scenario out there that happens that if she over time does not please her master who hath betrothed her to himself. Let's say the agreement with the father is, would you care for my wife uh, when she grows up, marry her or marry her to one of your sons. If she, it gets to the place where she is not pleasing or he doesn't want to do that, betrothed her either to himself or to his son, he says, then shall he let her be redeemed? Ah. You see, the intent in a father in giving his daughter was that she be cared for for the remainder of her life through her eventual betrothal and marital union. I, I think about wedding. John, you have the wedding on, on Saturday. Um, 
You know, in the wedding, we, we uh, by tradition, the father comes in with his daughter, locked arms, and comes down the aisle, and the preacher stands up and says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And if you think about, as the daughter comes, um, I'll use uh, Adeline, my first daughter, as an illustration, but if she comes, you know, it's, it's, it's Adeline Hope Knickerbocker. That last name, Knickerbocker, that's my name. And so at the wedding, when I pass my daughter off one day, Lord willing to a man, uh, she is going to take his name. And the implication, and I will threaten him, the implication is I've cared for her without regard for all of her life, and she's carried my name all of her life, and now she's going to take your name, so you better treat her like I've treated her. That's the implication, isn't it? She's going to take your name just like she's had my name all of her life. And I love her, I will say, without regard. I will care for all of her needs. And so when she takes your name, you better care for all of her needs. And if you don't, I have a shotgun. I'm, I'm just joking. That's the expectation here. Do you see? The father has sold his daughter. He can't care for her anymore, but there's been an agreement. You see, the father is not careless. He has cared for his daughter. He, he's cared to make sure that his uh, daughter will one day be betrothed. She will be cared for, whether it be to the man or to the man's son, one of his sons. So he's going to be cared for. The father's done his duty. And here he, we see he, he should not be deceived in this matter because if the man that, he's been, that the daughter's been sold to now is not pleased with her, he can't just throw her out. If the father still can't care for her, he has to give the opportunity for her to be redeemed. What does that mean? To be ransomed, to be bought back, to be released. Notice, let her be redeemed. And I think that the first candidate of being redeemed, if the father could, he would redeem his daughter and buy her back. But if another man could care for her, there would be the option so that the woman would never be neglected. She would be cared for. So if that expectation did not happen, the master did not have the liberty to sell this woman. Here he says, actually, uh, if you notice, uh, to sell her unto a strange nation, he shall have no power. So he says this, he says, I want you men to be very careful about this. This woman must always remain under the protection of the laws of the nation of Israel. If you sell her to a stranger, she will no longer be under the protections that are rightfully afforded to her based upon the judgments and the statutes of God. So you have no liberty to do that. Absolutely none. So he says she can be redeemed. You have no liberty, no power to sell her to a stranger. Notice, seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. Now that's here, the key in our text here, what is he saying? What, what, is, what is he saying? The word here, deceitfully, means to cover, to act covertly, to be deceptive. Give, let me give you an illustration. A man is sitting in his, in his 
home. He sees this father, battered, broken, rough, skinny, doesn't have any food to eat. But he brings his daughter because he wants his daughter to be careful. And he has no power, no finances, no home to care for his daughter. So he brings it to this man and this man thinks to himself, I have an opportunity now. I can take advantage of this situation. I can lie to him and deceive him and act like I'm going to care for his daughter. But that's not what I'm interested in. You see, he could deceitfully say, I could make money here. I could gain her for a small price because this man is poor. But then I could go over here and sell her to a stranger and make money off of it. No, you're not allowed to do that. This woman has to be cared for within the umbrella of the nation of Israel. She can't go outside. She can't operate outside of that. You have no power or freedom to do that. And so here, God brings forth this judgment. Why? Because He knows the nature of man. And He knows that the nature of man is to uh, misdeal with his neighbor, with his fellow Hebrew who is going through poverty, who is going through struggles. And He says, you better not take advantage of that. You must make a way for the woman to be cared for. So, the implication here of the word deceitfully means that the man was intending, it's the word for pillage, to rob his fellow man. And he says, don't do that. Verse 9, he says, and if he have betrothed her unto his son. So that's the two options that a, a father would let his daughter go. The implication would be that the man she is turning his daughter over to would care for her, be betrothed to her, and marry her, or if not him, his son. That, that's the agreement. See, a father would not uh, let his daughter go if he didn't know that she would be safe. If he didn't know that she would be cared for. And so he says, if a man is too old, let's say for this woman, he may decide to betroth her to his son, seeing that he would be more suitable in age for her. He says, he shall deal with her, the master shall deal with her, after the manner of daughters. Ah, you see, yes, yeah, she is your servant, but notice you don't treat her like a servant. You're going to treat her like a daughter. Do you see the rules? Why there would be an incentive for a father who can't care for his daughter anymore to turn his daughter over to another man because the understanding is that she's going to be treated like a daughter that I can't care for. But can you imagine the amount of trust to that poor man who's committing his daughter over to another man that would have to be put in that man? And if any man would take advantage of that and be deceitful, Oh, the shame upon that man to take advantage in such a way of the poverty of another man. So, he shall deal with her after the manner of daughter. So, the master will treat the woman as if she was his own daughter and give her, the idea here is uh, when he says, after the manner of daughters, every daughter receives a dowry. I think that's how you say it, right? Dower, I can't, I have a hard time saying it. Dowry. <laughs> okay, I'm good. You understand what I'm saying. A dowry at that time was given, really um, it could be given in the form of money or property. 
But it was given to ensure, a dowry was given to a woman to ensure that the woman would be well cared for. Now notice, when the father comes with his daughter and sells his daughter, it's not what we think. Oh, what an evil father selling his daughter. No, 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 look at the whole text. He's giving his daughter what he himself cannot give her. He is ensuring her safety. He is ensuring that she's cared for for the rest of her life by that act. And it would already be difficult in the first place. And so... Verse 10, he says, If he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage shall he not diminish. Now again, here, here's, this, this is the judgments. The nation of Israel, they're wicked people. And no doubt, because many of them, by the way, had already come from Egypt. They already had wicked lifestyles. Some of them probably had already more than one wife. That doesn't make it right. But God passes judgment. He says, the father's intent was to care for his daughter that she'd be set for life. And so your son or you yourself, you can't take another wife and then take away from her what the father expected her to get. You can't do that. You can't diminish her food or her raiment. You cannot do that. Now, the Bible says, uh, right, verse 10, uh, if you take another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage shall he not diminish. So food, basic necessity of life, her raiment, her duty of marriage, I believe here that the duty of marriage here that he's referring to, and I've read as much as I've heard throughout the New Testament, it's, I believe, the intimacy that happens within marriage. That she is not to be denied those basic necessities of food, of raiment, and intimacy. And so the wife, here it is, was not to be neglected or deprived should another wife come in the picture she would receive the full of what she was guaranteed as a wife. Now, verse 11, he says, And if he do not these three unto her, the three is referring back to the food raiment and the duty of marriage, then shall she go out free without money. So, what do we learn here from our text? Here's what we learn. Number one is that the subjection to a master was never to be permanent. Right? We saw that in the first six verses. It was not permanent. Uh, no permanent, uh, if you want to put it in this way, I know it's hard for us to think about it in a positive way, but no servant-master Relation would be permanent without the choice of the servant. Uh, that's what we learn. So it would not be permanent. Uh, the second thing we learn here, another principle we take from this is that the, the women of the land would be treated with great respect. Now sometimes you read the old, it's like, oh, the Bible uh, puts down women. The, tr- the opposite is true. You see that clearly in this passage of Scripture. She is to be treated better than the man-servant. Uh, And the men were to actively seek what was in the best interest of the woman. That's what we find in our text. Even, by the way, the master to the servant. (laughs) He said, you can't do what you want. You don't have the power or the liberty to do what you want with her. You must abide by those judgments. And he gives those outs, right? Uh, 
she shall be redeemed if you're not pleased with her, or by the end you let her go free. And so those are the things, the judgments that God appointed. And so uh, the third thing we learn is this, that the misfortunes of some should not be taken advantage of by others. That's what we learn. By the way, that's what they had faced in Egypt. Their misfortune had been taken advantage of. Uh, they, you remember, when God intervened, is because God heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, is what the Bible tells us. So, to go back to what I said at the beginning, there are two principles that come forth from our text. There is a need to show mercy. And there is a need to show moderation. The opposite would be to deal with someone deceitfully and to take advantage of somebody. You see, a man who would come, a man who would see a, another man, one of his brethren, another Hebrew, coming with his daughter, with the option of selling his daughter to him, would be a, a, a great heartbreak for that father, and he is not to despise that man. He is not to mistreat that man. He is not to deceive that man. That man's intent is that his daughter be cared for. And so if you deceive that man, how wicked are you? When he releases his daughter in peace as he departs the home, knowing in his own heart and mind that his daughter will be cared for for the rest of her life and do what he cannot do. And to turn around into the exact opposite is a great affront to God. So I believe here God is teaching His people about being merciful. Being merciful. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus Christ gave the beatitude, and He said this to His disciples, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy. What is mercy? There is a practical aspect of mercy. It means to be compassionate on someone else, to have pity on someone else, to show sympathy to someone else. In the context of Exodus 21, if a man sees a poor man coming with his daughter to sell her, well, he knows the struggle and he is to show compassion. He is to show pity. He is to put himself in his shoes and say, if I came to this place and if it was my daughter, I'm going to make sure that I treat this man's daughter like I would want my daughter to be treated. I'm going to put myself in this man's shoes. That's what God is trying to teach his people. Be compassionate. Be pitiful. In Matthew 18, 35, Jesus said, Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? That's when Jesus Christ gives this parable of uh, this servant who owed his master a great deal, you remember. And uh, the master forgave him the great debt that he owed. And yet that servant went out and a servant owed him just a little bit and he refused to forgive that servant his debt. And Jesus said, this is, this is horrible. This, this is an affront. 
You have been forgiven this great indebtedness, but you refuse to forgive your fellow servant for a small indebtedness. God says you're a wicked servant. It is the height of wickedness not to show mercy towards a fellow brethren. Throughout the Bible, we see the instruction for God's people to be merciful. It means simply this, to be compassionate. Compassion will go a long way. The Bible, uh, the book of Jude ends with, and some have compassion making a difference. We want to make a difference in the lives of our fellow man. I'll tell you how we can make a difference. Be merciful. Be merciful. See, we, we all have the same sinful nature. We all have struggles and sometimes we do things that we ought not to do and we are commanded to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. Pastor, you don't understand. Somebody said this to me and somebody did this to me and I just can't forgive them. Well, what if God said that to you? He didn't. He didn't. He forgave you your trespasses. It's an affront to God for a man who says, well, I know God has done that towards me. God has been merciful toward me, but I just refuse to be merciful towards anybody else. Wow. Isn't that wickedness? To think ourselves better than God that God looks at our lives and says he is worthy of receiving mercy but then we look at the lives of others around us and say he is not worthy of mercy and he is not worthy of mercy and she is not worthy of mercy how dare we think of ourselves better than God we are not better than God but we are instructed we are instructed over and over again to be like Him. He says, Be merciful. Those who are merciful shall obtain mercy. When Peter asked the question to the Lord, you remember what he said. He says, um, How often shall my brother trespass against me and I forgive him till seven times. Is that, is that sufficient seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say unto thee, until seven, uh, 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 say unto, unto him, until seven times, but until 70 times seven. The point is not to keep track. <laughs> the point is you will lose track. And if somebody offends you, over and over and over and over again, you are to forgive them and show mercy. Isn't that what God does for us? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness over and over and over again. There is not one verse in all of the Bible that says that if you come to God, God will not forgive you. So well, I've offended God so many times that you know His Word promises that if you just confess your sins, He will forgive your sins. He is just to do that. 
He is faithful to do that. He is merciful to do that. In Matthew 18, 35, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. We must show the mercy that the Lord has shown towards us if we want to be Christ-like. So we look here at our text, Exodus 21. We might think it strange and peculiar, but the truth is here, God, because He is a merciful God, and because He wants His people to reflect His glory and who He is and His nature, and His nature is to be merciful. The psalm goes like this. Every verse ends with, that, Thy mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And so he's trying, his, he's teaching his people, don't deal deceitfully. Show mercy and moderation as you deal with your fellow man. Well, we know that that is the instruction all throughout the New Testament for us believers as we deal with one another.